Today's episode of the Get Home Safe podcast contains explicit language that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It's time to play ball. Welcome to the podcast with no limits. Whether it be sports, current events, or random thoughts, this is the place to step in and stay a while. Your host is a proud alumnus of Rio Hondo Prep, a former minor league baseball umpire and a man with strong opinions. Welcome to the Get Home Safe podcast and your host, Matt Persima. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Get Home Safe. It is Wednesday, August 19th, 2020. Thank you for joining us today. It is Wednesday, and that means that it is time to talk to Bill Barnes on the weekly Wednesday weigh-in. The retired police officer and retired college baseball umpire is here every single Wednesday. We chat with him. He gets things off his chest. He gets uh, pretty crazy usually, but I can tell you today that we do have a little different show today. Uh, Bill's idea, so we're going to go a little different direction, at least for a short time, and we're going to be talking about some stories from uh, some real-life law enforcement stories, if you will, that uh, Bill Barnes was connected to some way, some kind. He knew people involved, we'll say that. One was a little more recent when he was uh, on the Riverside Police Force, and another one uh, was from over 40 years ago. We talked about it a little bit on Friday, actually, in our Suds with Studs segment, but uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, Norco bank robbery of 1980. And again, Bill wasn't involved in that, of course, because he was only like 20 years old, but he has uh, talked to a lot of guys who were involved in that. And he's going to share some stories that he's heard from that, as well as some information from a book he's reading currently called Norco, Norco, Norco 80, excuse me. Uh, And then we're also going to go into uh, and discuss a an Amazon documentary. It's a one episode thing. It's only about 45, 50 minutes about a situation that occurred in Riverside uh, for the Riverside Police Department slash Riverside Sheriff's Department uh, involving a female deputy who uh, was kind of got intertwined, kind of got involved when she shouldn't have with uh, someone in prison who was uh, on trial for murder or at least going to be charged with murder. So it's a very intriguing story. Uh, Bill Barnes, again, told me to watch that uh, movie um, on Netflix, excuse me, on Amazon. It's not a movie. It's just a short documentary and it it's called Love and Betrayal. We're going to get into all that. It's a pretty good conversation. We had two interesting stories. Uh, again, things that really happened and Bill Barnes is going to comment on those and uh, share his thoughts about both situations. And at, at the end, we'll go into our usual little thing, but we thought we'd take a break from a few of the current events, uh, anger and such that we typically have regarding the coronavirus, politics, uh, all that stuff. We'll talk a little sports towards the end and, and, and a little coronavirus, but nothing too serious. Anyway, that's kind of how the interview goes with Bill Barnes today. So uh, it's, it's still a lot of fun. Bill is still Bill. And uh, uh, there's some good themes and uh, discussions in that uh, upcoming here very soon. My thought today, guys, is this. Have you guys ever asked somebody? Well, I should let me let me back up here. Has anybody ever asked you for advice and then been like upset when you gave them an answer? And maybe you were the one doing the asking and you were upset at the answer. 
I'm not taught. I mean, sure. If you want to guys and girls relationships, you know, uh, that, that typical stuff. Uh, but, but you know, the saying goes, never ask a question that you don't want to hear the answer to. Right. But it's funny to me when people ask for advice or ask a question, ask an opinion, then somebody gives their opinion and it's like upsetting to the person who asked. It's like, well, you asked the question knowing that there was a possibility that you might not like the answer. So why did you ask the question? <laughs> let me let me share uh, some insight for you guys. That happens in life all the time, especially now. There's so many different topics and subjects where people will ask your advice or your opinion, and they don't like what you have to say. Well, it's like, dude, you're the one asking the question. Uh, but anyway, in baseball, whether it be professional baseball, college baseball, what you guys may not see during a game um, or understand really is that hitters talk to umpires all the time. You can't really see catchers do it because they keep their head forward like they're supposed to. Occasionally you'll see a pitcher uh, talk to umpires, but a lot of times what hitters do in their conversations, uh, they'll, they'll take a swing or they'll, they'll even take a pitch and they'll just turn real quick and they'll just quick question, kind of nod their head and, and what they're doing is they're asking the umpire questions about the strike zone, respectfully, of course. But let's say a guy swings at a pitch. He fouls it off. As you're giving a baseball back to the catcher, the hitter will usually say, hey, was that a strike I swung at? And and most of the time as an umpire, I would say yes, because it was sometimes hard to judge unless you saw the ball go through the zone, which is kind of the big difference between hitting and umpiring. Uh, but from what I saw <laughs> – it kind of looked like it was going to be a strike or at least close. So I'd be like, yeah. Uh, and my logic was, well, this guy swung at it and fouled it off. So yeah, it's probably in the zone. Sometimes I'd say, yeah, that's pretty close. Um, or I'd say, no, that was way up. You, you chase one there. Guys want to know in the batter's box if the pitch they swung at was a strike or not. And even after strike three, a guy will chase one. And he'll be walking back to the dugout. Hey, Matt, Matt, was that outside? I'm like, yeah, it was outside. And he's like, ah. So those are some of the questions that are asked on a baseball field that maybe uh, people don't realize, like with hitters. And, and again, professional baseball, college baseball, uh, that, that goes on. And yes, there are situations where the hitters get pretty fiery as well, or they'll be sarcastic and they'll ask a question maybe with their head down so that no one doesn't, nobody knows. Um, but anyway, that's some insight into kind of the game of baseball. But it was always funny to me when a hitter would ask, okay, and this wouldn't happen as much. Hey, was that a strike? I'd be like, yeah, I had that there. And he's like, really? I'm like, wait a minute. You asked me, <laughs> number number one, I gave you my answer. And number two, you're the one that swung at it, not me. So <laughs> you you thought it was a strike or at least close enough. So that kind of goes back to the whole asking for advice or asking an opinion thing and then getting mad. Uh, I saw that all the time in baseball. Uh, another thing I found fascinating about that whole scenario, you know, batters would, would be angry about pitches that you called strikes on them. Right. And they'd be like, Ooh, that's outside. Oh, that's down. Come on. All right. But if they swung and fouled the ball off, they, they, they almost took your word as gospel. Hey, was that a strike? Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. And it's like, you, you're, you, you are okay with my opinion and my judgment when I agree with you that yes, it was a strike, a ball that you swung at. 
But if I call something you don't like, you then don't trust my opinion or my judgment. Maybe you guys don't see the irony or or the or what I'm trying to say there as much as as I see it, or maybe other umpires do. But it's interesting that again, you ask a question you don't want to hear the answer to. That's one thing, and then number two, it's this selective, uh, uh, selecting uh, selective approval of my judgment, and you see that in baseball every night. All these different ejections and everything you guys are seeing in baseball, um, a lot of times. It's a buildup of an entire at-bat or multiple at-bats. The other great thing you hear from hitters is you call a pitch that really caught the bottom of the zone, at least in your eyes, really good pitch. Hitter thought it was low. You call call strike two on it. He backs out. He's angry. He's mad. Then he swings at one in the dirt the very next pitch, and he's mad at you because you made him swing at it. Well, it's like, wait a minute. Stop right there. You didn't like the pitch I called, which was at the bottom of the zone. Okay. I had, you know, at the knee or just below it. Okay. You didn't like that one, but you're going to, you're going to justify your anger at me for that as to why you then swung at one in the dirt, which was not even remotely close, but in their mind, it is, you forced me to swing at that. Cause I thought everything that's low, I have to swing it. So I'm seeing a lot of these similarities uh, from my baseball experiences if you really think about them, they, as far as life goes, it's, it's eerily similar with kind of a lot of the things going on, you know, as far as, uh, you know, politics and all these different movements and everything, I don't want to get too much into them. It's kind of a baseball analogy, but I've just found it interesting in watching more baseball and watching hitters talk to, to umpires. I watch all that stuff and I haven't umpired in a few months now, but I've done it for a long time. And, uh, it's always the same song and dance. Oh, oh you, you know, a pitch you hitter thought was outside. You call a strike. Then he grounds out to second base and he's furious at you. You took the at bat away from me. Like, what? Excuse me. You have three strikes. Not, not one, not one questionable pitch. And guys, look at, I'm not talking about the egregious bad calls. Cause quite honestly, there's not a lot of them. The bad calls you guys think, because it's just outside that fake imaginary cyber box. Uh, that's just outside, uh, you know, that's not an egregious miss of a ball that's three feet outside or something or bounces. Uh, yes. Okay. You want to argue? Oh, I saw this the other night. Okay. There are occasions. It happens. All right. It's very rare, like an outfielder dropping a, a pop fly. Okay. It's extremely rare. The egregious misses. All right. I'm talking about just your standard uh, arguments in the game. And, and it's just interesting that it's so with, with you're seeing more arguments now with hitters because of technology, they go back and they look at the pitch and they're mad. They're so mad that it's an inch, an inch outside. And you're like, dude, <laughs> come on. That's close enough. As we used to say, right. Not, not as umpires, but as hitters, like that might be a strike. You might got to protect the plate or whatever, but I found it interesting. I was thinking about the other day asking an umpire opinion, and you accept it when he's like, yeah, yeah, you swung at a strike, almost like an encouragement thing. But the second you don't like a pitch outside, now now you don't want to approve of his judgment thing. It's very interesting. Think about it some more. Uh, take it a step further if you guys wish. Uh, I'm just throwing it out there today. Uh, speaking of baseball, the unwritten rules of baseball, there was some 
discussion recently about uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., who hit a grand slam uh, the other night for the Padres. And uh, I believe they're playing the Rangers. And the Padres had a big lead, seven-run lead, I think, and in like the eighth inning, 10-3. to And on a 3-0 pitch, Tatis Jr. uh, whacked one out of the uh, out of the yard for a grand slam and a lot of people upset about it uh for a few reasons people are upset that he broke an unwritten rule if your team has a big lead you know swinging as hard as you can at a 3-0 pitch is kind of like a cheap shot it's like uh it's like throwing a you know when your team's up by 40 points on a third and one and, and you throw a, a deep pass or, uh, you know, you're up 30 points in a basketball game and you're pressing. So baseball has this sensitivity issue. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that that doesn't exist. OK, but it is one of the only games with all the, these unwritten rules. And there's there's a lot of them out there. Um, there's no doubt about it. If you ever want an interesting read or some insight again into the game of baseball, go ahead and Google. Hey, the, what are some of the unwritten rules? And that was a big one. Don't swing at a 3-0 pitch when uh, your team has a big lead and <laughs> i've been i've been in the middle of that i've been in the middle of arguments and fights on the field when i've seen that happen and some young players don't necessarily know that that's what's expected of them uh, i i am kind of on the fence about unwritten rules if you ask me i'm not a huge fan of a guy hitting a home run and staring at it and flipping his bat you know that's a big unwritten rule um so that I, I agree with because I'm kind of against showboating and all that stuff anyway, uh, respecting the game, if you will. Right. Uh, but so that so that was something that's something I get. But but, the you know, there's other ones, too. I, I should look them up and maybe in next show, uh, maybe tomorrow or in the upcoming weeks, I'll I'll come up with a few uh, unwritten rules in baseball just to discuss those. But the three oh one man, I was umpiring a game and it was a big lead. 3-0 pitch came in, and the team that was winning, this dude took a, a massive hack, right? Because you know the team's struggling. He's going to throw a fastball right down the middle, and you're just getting a freebie here. And uh, he fouled it off. <laughs> and you should have heard the groan of the infielders, the outfielders, and even me behind the plate. As soon as he swung, I went, oh, no. <laughs> and the catcher, and everyone was like, catcher's like, what's up, dude? Like, what's up? You, you need you need some uh, free free points in your batting average or something? And and the kid didn't understand. He was like 19 years old or something. And as the inning ended, team's coming off the field. And the leader of the, of the team, kind of the shortstop, he was like, hey, talk to that guy, man. You got to talk to him, like to the other to the other team. And the center fielder, who was actually the next big leaguer, he comes in and he is he is furious. He's hot. You need to tell him. He's screaming, tell him to clean it up, figure it out. And a few expletives in there, of course. And we almost had a bench clearing situation. And so these are the things that happen in baseball games, guys. Uh, there's a sensitivity issue. There's a respecting of the game issue. It's a fine line. I'm not saying baseball players or the game of baseball is all ridiculous with some of these rules. Uh, I, I think a lot of it helps police the game, manage the game. Uh, and there are a few, of course, that are kind of like really like you were offended by that, you know, as far as baseball goes. So the game has grown a little bit. Um, there's still a great old school, old school feel, old schoolness to it, um, if that's a word. So, but those are just some of the things, again, that go on. And I will here shortly uh, talk to you guys about a few unwritten rules of baseball 
just to uh for some of you guys can roll your eyes some of you guys can be like uh man that's that's just come on is that really that's really offensive to people but it causes a lot of fights man most of the most of the arguments and the fights you guys see on television it's over something that that's that's that ridiculous a uh, bunting bunting in the uh, later innings or when you have a, a big lead again, what determines a big lead is in the eye of the beholder, of course. Uh, but bunting for that first hit when a guy's throwing a, a no hitter to some people, that's an unwritten rule. And other guys are like, man, if it's a one, nothing game, our job's to win the game. Not, not, uh, you know, bow down to, to your unwritten rule here. Um, uh, but anyway, that, those are just some of the things. Another, if you're, if it's a big lead, you typically don't steal a base. Uh, just stuff like that because baseball has what baseball has that other sports don't is the ability to police it not only with yelling at each other but throwing a projectile at somebody and again that's where a lot of these throwing situations stem from and it could have been something from two years ago and now this guy faces him for the for the time since he uh he he offended me or he did something mean or whatever and uh, and it goes down and just high and tight fastball at the chat. I mean, you're seeing what's happening with the Astros, right? That those were some extremely unwritten rules uh, that you shouldn't have to write down, but uh, apparently you do now and they're getting thrown at and they will continue to get thrown at because that's how the game of baseball is. It's very uh, vindictive is like the wrong word, but it's a, it's just this, it's this constant uh, merry-go-round. It's a long season, like most seasons, unlike uh, or like most seasons in, it's the, except for this year. And so I think you guys are seeing a little bit more of it because the game is compacted. Uh, some of these seven inning double headers, 60 game season, you're, you're seeing more of this intensity than you do with typically your long baseball season, the marathon and such. So again, those are my couple cents this morning about baseball. I would love to talk more and maybe we'll get into some more unwritten rules briefly here, but I just wanted to share those thoughts with you guys this morning about asking questions, kind of that umpire hitter interaction, and uh, also the unwritten rule broken from the other night that uh, some people are, are very upset over, even though even the guy's team, the guy's team, and he, he hit a grand slam for them. Uh, his manager, his teammates are like, yeah, we, we shouldn't be doing that, which is, which is just funny. But again, baseball people, um, and at one time I considered myself a, a baseball uh, person, we'll say, you know, people in baseball, they will always say, you know what? Hey, that's baseball. You don't understand. You're not a part of this. You're not in the mix. It's just how the way things are. And you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. Anyway, we will talk more on here at the rules later. Let's get to our interview with Bill Barnes for the weekly Wednesday weigh-in. Uh, maybe next week we will chat some unwritten rules with Bill and talk about them and maybe even share a few stories about how, uh, unwritten rules cause some uh, real life situations. And we had to deal with, with a few of those things, each of us collectively through our umpiring days. So hope you enjoyed that guys. We'll talk more baseball later, but let's get to our interview with Bill Barnes on the weekly Wednesday weigh-in. After a quick break, we will jump right into it with Bill Barnes. Thank you. 
It's the middle of the week. It's Wednesday. That means it's time for Bill Barnes on the weekly Wednesday weigh-in. The retired police officer and retired college baseball umpire joins us every single Wednesday for strong opinions and very random thoughts. Once again, here is the one and only Bill Barnes. Okay, we are back with Bill Barnes on the weekly Wednesday weigh-in, and I am once again at his lovely home in Rancho Cucamonga, California. It's a pleasure to be here. Bill, thanks for having me once again. You know, it's I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we can bring the Rio Hondo <laughs> Prep Radio Network <laughs> into my house and, and, and broadcast from here. It's a real pleasure. Um, the more and more I'm on this show, the more I realize that I am becoming a proud honorary doctorate <laughs> uh, degree member of the Rio Hondo prep family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And Bill, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to Monday's episode, but uh, you know, you got brought up uh, amongst uh, someone who was on the program. Uh, Coach Edwin Nixta of Rio Hondo prep works primarily in the junior high department. And I asked him directly about you uh, because uh, we were chatting and he said he's a huge fan of the show and he even loves Wednesdays with Bill Barnes. Well, that's shocking because, um, <laughs> and I appreciate coach for, for giving me a, a you know, kind of a, a I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and honored that he would number one, not just completely shut me off because of the way I go on and on and <laughs> with my antics, but he did understand and he realizes that, Hey, it's called a joke, people. J-O-K-E. It's a four-letter word that some of us really need to embrace nowadays. And I'm glad that he was able to understand that and bring some some sense to my nonsense. And it's uh, I will gladly, gladly take him up on the offer to throw out a first pitch at a junior high baseball game. Absolutely. I'll do it left-handed. And I will even I will, and I guarantee you I'll throw the ball better than Fauci did or 50 cent did or who, who, whatever, you know, the most brutal first pitches ever. Um, I guarantee you, I, I will do better left-handed. So anyway, no, I appreciate him, <laughs> him um, making those comments. It's very, very nice of him. And, and yes, uh, I am mostly all bark and no bite, but I, but I, I do enjoy telling it like it is. And when my language does get colorful, well, you have that, that advisory, do you not? Yes, you do. The show. You, you are advised and before every Wednesday episode. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. So with that in mind, I'm hoping this virus, this pandemic will 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 uh, be done so I can get out to um, Rio Hondo Prep. And if I'm not the, the uh, keynote speaker at a graduation, I can at least at least throw out a first pitch. So oh that would, yeah. That would be wonderful. We don't do much video here at the podcast, but I can promise you that would be videotaped all over our Twitter, Facebook, and uh, we would have some fun with that. And I time. would keep, I would keep it PG 13. I would keep it PG. I would yes. be very, very, very uh, <laughs> uh, businesslike and cordial in my, in my uh, uh, keynote, uh, <laughs> my keynote. Uh, yeah. Appearance. Speech. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh man. Well uh, yeah. Thanks Edwin for, chatting, saying nice things about Bill. I, I know there's many more out there who will say more good things about you, Bill, and uh, we'll, we'll get to those uh, another time, I'm sure. Anyway, Bill, uh, 
We're going to try a little something different today, a little different approach, not as many current events. There are a few things that occurred over the weekend that I want to ask you and talk to you about just because you bring out a little fire in me as well. But something you wanted to talk about that was actually, you know, an idea of yours that I I thought was a great idea. Um, Basically two um, law enforcement stories, if you will, that you weren't involved in, but you happen to know directly a lot of people who were involved in. Um, one of them uh, is is a, a book you're reading or just finished, and we'll get to that in a second. But the more recent one was something that actually did occur with the Riverside Police Department when you were on the force, right? Yes. Well, you randomly texted me one night and you said, hey, check out this uh, this short documentary on Netflix is about 45 minutes. And I was like, what's this? And it said Riverside, California, Riverside police department. Uh, you know, uh, there was a murder. There was a, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting story. It was a short uh, documentary about a real life situation. And it was definitely a little low budget or whatever, but I enjoyed it. And, and knowing that you knew these people was very interesting. So please tell us about uh, this documentary and actually a little bit about the story as well. Sure. Well, as you say, low budget, you got to remember <laughs> with what, what goes on in Riverside, it's homicide, suicide, genocide, a lot of pesticide, <laughs> and you're in Riverside. So with that in mind, it's going to be kind of a low budget um, uh, shot kind of behind the scenes type with uh, instead of aerial photographs, we're, we're using drones, that kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, um, what happened was, is back in the early 2000s, um, there was a, a young, young uh, female deputy by the name of Angela Parks. Angela did extremely well in her academy. <coughs> Excuse me. She was, uh, upon her graduation, was placed at the Riverside County Jail, the Robert Presley Detention Center, which is in the downtown Riverside uh, and it's mainly, it mainly houses folks that are, you know, going to, that are, you know, there for misdemeanor charges that are either on their way to or from court in downtown Riverside, et cetera. But anyway, a, there was a murder in the city of Riverside, which a young man was shot about five, six times, killed almost ex- execution style at very close range at a bar out in the south end of town in, in, a, in the area called Arlanza. Arlanza is a heavily Hispanic area, a lot of uh, Mexican gangs in that area, a lot of which are under the umbrella of the Mexican mafia. And the suspect in this case was arrested later on with some really good police work by one of my good friends, Detective Steve Shumway and Detective uh, Jimmy Simons. Jimmy uh, was a gang expert at the time, grew up in Arlanza, knew all, knew all these guys from like elementary school, grew up with them, knew them and was a real good asset to the department, still works there. I believe he's a sergeant now. But anyway, back then, he and Steve worked up a case. They arrested this guy, and subsequently, he went to jail. And during this time, Angela was working at the jail. She, Her boyfriend, follow along here, is a young uh, rookie police officer by the name of Johnny Porsche. Johnny, whose stepfather was also a Riverside Police Department homicide detective. His mother was a a gang investigator with the Riverside Police Department. So we've got a major law enforcement type story here 
of, on all fronts. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to say so much about this that I give away the whole thing, but it's kind of like watching the movie JFK. You know the you know the ending, unless you're a complete and utter, you know, unless you you've never studied history or you woke up yesterday, you you kind of know the ending on this thing. So <clears throat> it's basically it's a very well done documentary. Um, Johnny was a cop. He and Angela had a relationship. They were engaged to be married. Um, their their relationship progressed till about. Probably when the suspect from this murder, I'm not going to give us, give away his name, was arrested, he went to county jail. Angela was working his jail block. Evidently, Angela and this su suspect of this murder became acquaintances to the point where the suspect gained the, the trust and vice versa with Angela and the suspect to where they would pass notes. They, be, they became infatuated with each other and to the level where the relationship between Angela and Johnny cooled way off. Johnny thought, what the hell's going on here? Is she cheating on me? Um, she's acting differently. Every time she goes out of my presence, she takes her phone with her. That's telling me that she doesn't want me mm -hmm. to see the number of a text that may come across the whole, you know, nine yards. Well, <clears throat> lo and behold, um, as detective Steve Shumway is working this case, he is, um, gathering mail that's being intercepted from the jail. He's also he's also monitoring the suspect's phone calls, which is all legal because as we all know, when you're in a jail mm -hmm. setting, you have no right to privacy. Okay. It's not like you're at your home. You're in a jailed facility, you no longer have your fourth amendment rights to the constitution about search and seizure. What is yours is theirs. So with that said, um, Steve is working up a case. Well, lo and behold, he finds some notes. And in these notes are notes about the suspect and Angela's relationship. And it's very, very <laughs> telling about the fact that he is trying to solicit her to A, bring in drugs, which she did to the jail, to um, deliver notes written by him to people outside the jail to where he's basically doing his shot calling from inside the Riverside County Jail as far as administering um, instructions to his gang, gang members to basically do a hit on some folks. So with all that in mind and with all that evidence, um, Johnny is, is um, advised of all this and he immediately seizes his relationship with Angela. She is subsequently questioned and arrested for solicitation to commit murder <laughs> and a, a whole other myriad of charges. So basically this story, this documentary this is about 50 minutes goes into great detail about the relationships between everyone. Other folks are interviewed, such as Johnny's mother, father, his sister, um, everybody that became very, very close to Angela, who they kind of thought of as their daughter. And this whole uh, relationship just blows up in their face and they're distraught, they're upset, and they're dismayed at what has happened, as well as Johnny is. And 
During this time, Johnny, and I can tell you this firsthand, was in a shooting where he had to, he killed a, a guy who came at him with a knife and it was a excellent police shooting, excellent shooting. He had no other choice. It was a, it was not just, um, a shooting that, that was, uh, uh, you know, that, that he had probable cause to do. It was absolutely necessary. Yes. The shooting, it, it was, he was going to be attacked with a knife. Um, I worked part of that shooting, so I know for, for a fact that we investigated it thoroughly and it was deemed a, an appropriate and necessary shooting. So the, pro, the, the unfortunate part of this whole thing is that um, Johnny's career kind of went downhill after this, um, got into some, some stuff to where the administration didn't like and was, I don't know if, to be honest with you, I don't know if he was fired if he resigned or separated from the department, I don't know what the situation was, but he eventually left the department. And I believe he was off the department when this whole Angela Parks thing came to head. So if you can kind of follow along, this was kind of your unique type story of where jail deputy female yes. becomes enthralled yeah. with suspect male who is in there for murder not your ordinary garden variety um you know male prison guard who is knocking off a piece where nobody knows it inside a state prison which we all know probably always probably happens and no one says anything mm -hmm. okay we all know that what goes on in, in a prison is prison no one likes it it's supposed to be hell and all that good stuff so with this being said this suspect certainly had a power of persuasion with Angela to turn this ordinary, good, young deputy into something of a monster when it came to aiding and abetting this uh, homicide suspect. Now, I will say this. He was convicted and he was, I believe, sentenced to either life in prison without parole or the death penalty. I cannot remember which, but it's in the movie if you watch it. Angela was also sentenced to uh, 19 years state prison. Now, she didn't do 19 years because as, as of today, she's out and she's been out for a few years. Uh, I don't know where she's at, what she's doing, but I do know she's out. I don't know what her life is all about now. If she's picked herself up and moved on. I don't know. But I do know that that was quite a Big story back in, I believe it was like 2004, maybe 2003 in Riverside when this whole uh, uh, chain of events took place. Um, it's something that is completely kind of out of the ordinary. I know People Magazine did a piece on this back then. And I know that this documentary movie had been in the works for quite some time. And I believe it was actually done a few years ago because some of the things that have transpired recently in the last two or three years weren't part of the story as far as the uh, personal lives were affected of, of uh, the principles involved. But that's basically it in a nutshell. It's a good 50 minutes. It's done very good. All the people involved portray themselves. Um, Detective Steve Shumway, uh, uh, now Sergeant Jimmy Simons, uh, did a great job in, in uh, painting the picture of this whole thing. 
Um, Steve is currently still on the job. He's a district attorney investigator for San Bernardino County. He and I go way back. We played Colt League baseball against each other. He went to Ramona High School. I went to North. We both played baseball against each other. Uh, he was a really good third baseman, left-handed hitting third baseman. He probably could have had a, a, a good career in baseball also, but he got into being a police cadet early in his young life at about 19 or 20 and uh, served the city of Riverside quite, uh, quite well. Um, was just one of the, probably the best homicide detective uh, that I ever worked with and just a nice, nice guy as well. I just talked to him yesterday and he's doing good. And um, again, it was a really good, good show. I asked him if he saw the the movie and he said, no, he doesn't like to watch himself on film. <laughs> so, you know, he's a, he's, he's awfully, uh, um, you know, he's not, doesn't have a big head about this at all. and just goes on his merry way. But uh, I haven't talked to Jimmy in a while. Last time I saw Jimmy, I was stumbling, basically um, stumbling. <laughs> from a place in downtown Riverside called uh, Lake Alice to my hotel room at the Marriott about three blocks away. And I jaywalked across University Avenue and this cop uh, hit his horn at me. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I hope I know this guy. And I've, thank God it was Jimmy Simons <laughs> who had just gotten promoted to sergeant. And uh, he recognized me. We had a good laugh and he offered me a ride. And I said, no, thanks. And I said, I would, uh, you know, see what I could do to get hit at the next intersection, make a nice little report for him that night. But uh, no, they're all doing well. And uh, again, a really good story um, with tragic consequences, but um, just kind of an amazing um, set of circumstances that led into this. Yeah. And, and it's, it was very interesting. I enjoyed it. And it was, I always enjoy things that I know happened not too far from where I lived and, you know, look in this, I'm in Riverside County. I'm not too far from Riverside, uh, the city itself. And it was cool. I mean, uh, if, if you guys are looking for something to watch, it's a little different than your uh, standard cinematic experience or whatever. It's on Amazon Prime. It's called Love and Betrayal on the Force. It'll cost you two ninety nine to rent it. I mean, if you need to borrow some money from me or Bill, I'm sure we'd be gladly help you out here. But uh, check it out. It's definitely interesting. And what was also uh, a big part of it, as you mentioned, Bill, was so many of the people involved were people that you knew. I have a couple questions regarding um, when it was actually happening, not necessarily the documentary, but when this was going down, you guys were on the force. Did you, what was the, when this all came out, what was the atmosphere like? Was it like this, oh my goodness, one of our own? Uh, type of thing. I mean, I know she was a sheriff and not a not a police officer, but I mean, what could you tell me just about the overall atmosphere amongst uh, law enforcement at that time in Riverside? Well, there were there were two kind of sides to this. Me personally, I was working on the other side of the building, and I didn't have a whole lot of inside knowledge on what was going on. I knew this was happening. I knew that there was a a female deputy that was being looked at for, you know, citing you know, kind of being a traitor with the other side. I didn't know to this extent. I knew there was a murder case. I didn't know that she was, you know, leaving her car windows open at night. So this guy's friends could drop drugs in her car so she could go out and get it and then bring it into the, the jail to, to this guy. Um, because, you know, face it, if you're a, if you're a deputy, they don't search you. You don't go through a, a, mm -hmm. a magnetometer. You're, you're free to go come and go as you please. So 
I didn't know the extent of her involvement. Um, and I did not know that during the investigation, when, when all, the, all the cats were out of the bag, that uh, these detectives had kits out on them by the Mexican mafia, supposedly, and that they had cameras in their homes. They had uh, That's unbelievable. federal marshals guarding their homes. Uh, they had actually taken a picture of Jimmy Simon's kid getting a haircut at a local barbershop and sent it to him saying, hey, we know your kid. We know, you know, this, that and the other. And I did not know that was happening. I mean, they kept that pretty hush hush. And um, like I say, I used to talk to Steve every day. We were very good friends. We'd go to coffee together. We'd, you know, hang out and talk uh, fantasy football and all that stuff. And I never knew to the extent of uh what her actual hands-on involvement was. So let me ask, I'm, I have a few more questions here regarding, and if you can fill us in, uh, what, because of that, were there any procedure changes made as a result of that, whether it be the jails itself, whether it be a little less uh, interaction amongst deputies and people in their cells? I mean, was there any changes as a result of that? As far as what ha- jail procedures, I have no idea. Okay. I, 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 you know, as a, as a rule and, and just as my personal dis- disdain for being inside a jail, I could, I, I hated going into a jail. The, the stink of the place, number one, just the, the shitty, starchy smell of the shitty, shitty food <laughs> they would serve, number one, and just the stench of these prisoners who, who shower once a week. And just, it's not a fun place. I could never have been a jail deputy for five minutes. I could, that's one place I would have rather gone out and dug turds out of a backed up toilet than be a, be a jail deputy because it's just, I mean, God bless the ones who are doing it and the guys that have worked there for a long time. And then they go out on the street, they do six, seven years as a, as a deputy on the street, they get promoted to Sergeant and they're right back into lockup again. I just don't know how they do it, but I salute them for that. Um, so as far as the jail, I have no idea. As far as uh, our department, the only thing I would say is that it was a wake-up call to maybe our administration, the mm-hmm. way we, we hire our people as far as kind of vetting them a little better on who they hang out with. But you would never know. You would think, here's a young cop hanging out with another young cop. They're both young cops. Hey, what, what a better little, you know, mm-hmm. situation is that? At least he's not dating some, some, uh, you know, um, some stripper with a, with a cocaine straw hanging out of her nose. You know, I mean, he's, he's dating one of our own. So, but you just never know when one is going to flip and go bad. It's just one of those things. So, so it brings up an interesting point. I know that, uh, from having a lot of law enforcement friends that it's not uncommon, we'll say for cops to date cops or it's even, very common or yeah or even marry cops it's very common in, in fact i'll take you back when i first came on the job female cops were just kind of coming into the into the mix with with the numbers that 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 have kept mounting and before me maybe five ten years before me cops dated either waitresses or nurses okay <laughs> that's just the way it went then when female cops started coming into the mix Cops started dating other cops. The waitresses and the nurses were kind of left to fend for themselves. So <laughs> it is very common 
for that to happen. I mean, you spend an eight, 10 hour shift with these folks and regardless, and I'll be right straight and, and blunt with you, regardless if you're married or not married, it didn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. A man and woman spending 10 hours together with each other. And if they have the, the remote, uh, chance of being attracted to one another, yeah. sparks were going to fly. No, that, again, that's, that's not a common either. That's just, that's uh, yeah. just a, a biological fact. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm sure, you know, people try to keep it professional, but Hey, it's a tough environment. So here's a question for you kind of tied into that. What was interesting in the story was Angela was hiding things from Johnny. Now, these are two cops, we'll call them, two, two law enforcement. Isn't it – I know that there are some issues when with relationships and, and of cops and how there is some uh, extracurricular activity, we'll say, right, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned. Yes. Isn't it kind of – isn't there like an audacity? Isn't it kind of – I don't know. I don't know what the word is to – to try to hide something from someone whose job it is to kind of do police yes. work. You know knowing, what I mean? Okay, yes. And knowing Johnny, <laughs> like I know him and knew him then Johnny was a, a very suspicious of anything. He was suspicious that why is the sun coming out today? <laughs> why isn't it hiding? Okay. So with, with that said, it would be very, very difficult for me to believe that you could pull anything past Johnny other than the fact that he was, you know, you know, just, just, uh, awestruck in love and that he would just let it go over his head because he was so much in love. I, that I don't know. And believe me, Johnny was no angel himself. Okay. (laughs) So it's kind of like, you can't, it's, it's don't bullshit a bullshitter type thing. Yeah. So with that said, I think there was a lot of suspicion from the get go. And especially when this, uh, nonsense started. And when, when everyone, you know, and, and in the, and in the movie, everybody kind of looks back and goes, wow, that was a red flag. Wow. That was a red flag when she did this, that was a red flag when she did that. It all kind of makes sense. So mm-hmm. my whole thing is, is, and, and I'm a big believer in this is I trust my instincts a lot. My instincts have rarely, rarely, uh, let me down. Yeah. Something's telling you something, right? right? Yeah. That's interesting. And, and it's not. Uh, sure, there's a, sure, a, a, a few cases, maybe uh, a few small examples when some people are just insecure or whatever, or paranoid. But no, I think especially police officers, uh, the ones I've talked to about relationships and everything. Yeah, there, there is. How do you not, you, you work in this awareness industry and to not have that in right. your personal life right. would be kind of odd. I mean, to this day, I still walk around. I sit in a restaurant. My head's always on a swivel. Mm-hmm. I can tell you what the guy four, four booths over is wearing. Okay. <laughs> I, that's just who I am. That's, that's what I was. That's the way I was raised. And very, and going back to my instincts, I can tell you that very seldom, if ever, if I smelled a rat, it turned out to be pumpkin pie. <laughs> Oh boy, Bill, we love you. Um, great stuff. You can't get quotes like that anywhere else. Well, well, kind of one final thing about it is, you know, it was really the whole attraction psychology that they explained kind of at the end was uh, very fascinating in the sense that these are two completely opposite people. One is in prison, um, being charged with murder. The other is uh, this, for, for all intents and purposes, this this young lady who's done. A lot of great things has done everything right, and on the surface looks to be uh, very normal, and uh, you know, in law enforcement. And then to see 
as they, I won't ruin anything, but as they explained that attraction was very interesting uh, towards the end of it all. Yeah, yeah, we've kind of painted the the exterior of this thing, and we've left a lot of the good meat and potato part <laughs> to, uh, you know, everyone hoping you've had a taste of this that you're going to go out and rent this thing and watch it. I, I get nothing out of it. Matt gets nothing, nothing out of it. Nothing. We get nothing out of it. So we're not we're not pimping this thing for <laughs> anything other than. Um, all 12 listeners out there to go out and have yourself a good 50 minutes of uh, document documentary documentary uh, awareness on what's hat what's what goes on in behind the scenes in a, in a law enforcement uh, family which turns um, very 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 uh, strange yeah lot lot of lot of good uh, real life situations themes messages all that stuff uh, yes I encourage you guys go check it out spend three bucks it's not that much. It's 50 minutes of your life, and it uh, was some real-life stuff, Bill. So uh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. And I hope uh, if anyone watches it and you want to know some more or have some questions, send them to Bill Barnes. Direct, you know, you you (laughs) can press a button on this uh, podcast or you can email. (laughs) Matt will give you all the horsepower on this. And please, by all means, even if you want to know what my shoe size is or how fast (laughs) I run the 100 – or how fast Matt runs the hundred. We welcome any and all comments to this show. Um, you know, we we look forward to answering questions. Um, uh, you know, anything you got. You know, I, I would love to hear it, even if it's bad. Even if you want to uh, completely criticize me, I'd love it. Okay, <laughs> because I walk around thinking, you know, that I'm the best podcaster in the world. So someone, I should say guest in the world, someone needs to bring me down to reality, okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing out the challenge to each and every one of you. Find something fucking wrong with me, will you? Well, Bill, we have another law enforcement story to talk about today. Another one that you actually suggested to me and I actually discussed it a little bit last Friday on our Suds with Studs segment, kind of giving a brief summary of the event and the law enforcement officers who were involved in a pretty big shootout. When I was a kid, Bill, I thought I saw the North Hollywood shootout uh, take place and I thought that was a pretty big deal and it was, but you mentioned to me last week that there was actually a much bigger shootout that took place in 1980 and not too far from my house uh, down in the Eastvale. So uh, what can you tell me about the big shootout in 1980 and uh, maybe some information about what you told me? Well, this case is absolutely fascinating to me. I was a 20-year-old kid at the time. Um, it was May 9th, 1980. Um I will just read a little note that I have here on this. It is the true story of a violent criminal event that forever changed the face of American law enforcement. It was a uh, action thriller and part courtroom drama, the book I'm talking about here, and the, and the, the events. Narco 80, the book, it uh, basically is about Southern California in an era of predatory gurus, doomsday predictions, Soaring crime rates with the threat of nuclear abilitation looming over it all. Basically, what I'm saying is back then there was a startup church in Orange County called Harvest Christian, Harvest Crusade, which is now oh, yeah. known as the Harvest Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Greg Laurie, his, his, his flock, 
um, it was started by a guy named Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith out of Newport Beach, California, started this. His whole theory back then was that the 666 mark of the beast, um, you know, the apocalypse is going to be here soon. Um, you know, get right with your sins because when the Lord gets here, he's going to get you and take you to the, to, to the great place. Well, he had a big, big following and a lot of his following were a lot of what the five suspects in this case were all about guns, um, arming themselves heavily, fortifying their home to not only protect their guns, but their cultivation of marijuana, as well as they were doomsday uh, believers. They had gone to a gathering in 1970, I believe it was 1973, the Calvary Chapel Ocean Baptism in Corona Del Mar in 1973. And that is what spawned the beginning of this with Chuck Smith, the pastor of uh, the church down there. So anyway, let me let me just get to the meat and potatoes of this. Norco 80, basically, again, it's one of these, you know, it's a JFK story. You know the ending. Um, and Norco 80 was a group, a group of five individuals who had no real criminal history ever. They kidnap a guy in Brea, California with his truck, his van, drive it to Norco. They had originally, their original plan was to set off a, uh, a device for a, uh, an explosion to go off on the other end of town to draw all law enforcement and fire personnel away from 4th and Hamner, the Security Pacific Bank, where the bank robbery went down. Well, that diversionary tactic failed. 3.30 in the afternoon on a Friday, they went ahead with it and they said, screw it, we're going to go, we're going to do a takeover robbery of the bank, get our money and be on our way. Well, they went in at about the two minute and two minute and 30 second mark, um, which was about, they later said was 30 seconds too long. Um, someone had saw the robbery going down, called the sheriff. <clears throat> a broadcast was made of a 211 in progress, which means bank robbery in progress, not a 211 alarm, not a 211 silent, not a possible, but a 211 in progress. Security Pacific Bank, 4th and Hamner. A deputy by the name of Glenn Belaski, who just happened to be driving into the bank that day to cash his check at 3.30 in the afternoon after going in service from on his shift at 3 o'clock. As soon as the dispatcher put, put out the call, he was on scene. Within seconds, the suspects were fleeing the bank. Shootout occurs. Uh, the two other deputies in Norco respond. They engage. The first deputy, Belaski, is hit several times with automatic gunfire. And back then, folks, please realize that all, all the deputies were armed with were their 38 caliber Barney Fife, 38 Smith & Wesson revolvers, and a shotgun. These suspects had high-power hunting rifles. They had high-power automatic weaponry, and they just opened up on him. Um, so anyway, Belaski was shot. A second deputy came in, eventually rescued him, put him in his, in his own unit car, drove him to Corona uh, hospital in Corona. Third deputy by the name of, uh, 
Delgado, no relation to the two suspects who was also named Delgado, was left there by himself to engage um, with these with these suspects. And the suspects ended up abandoning their van because the driver, a guy by the name of Billy Delgado, took a, a uh, shotgun pellet to his head and was killed instantly. So they left him and, and don't forget our, our kidnap victim was also in the van. And from all of these rounds, the victim was never grazed, never wow. hit nothing. So they then hijacked a yellow utility pickup and went on their way on northbound on Hamner out of Norco deputies, CHP, police helicopters were chasing them this whole way. And because of the firepower, they had to lay back. And this chase eventually got into the foothills, into the mountains of Lytle Creek, California. So it went from Fourth and Hamner in the city of Norco all the way up to Lytle Creek, where unfortunately a deputy by the name of James Evans, who originally responded from Moreno Valley wow. back then, which wasn't even called Moreno Valley back then. It was <laughs> called Sunnymead. Um, he was blindsided at an intersect at a uh, blind curve and killed. <clears throat> what really glares out on this is that number one, they were shooting at civilians, cops, anything they could during this this uh, this trek from Norco to Lytle Creek. Luckily, I believe there was eight cops shot, minor injuries to all. There were um, some 32 police vehicles mm-hmm. either damaged or destroyed during this. There were um, civilian vehicles damaged and destroyed. And at one point, the only uh, person or people chasing these suspects was the Riverside Police Helicopter because all other deputies and whatnot had to lay back or were disabled. Also, uh, during this chase, the San Bernardino helicopter was actually shot down yeah. by these folks. So if you can, if you can imagine on a, on, a, on a busy Friday afternoon in 1980 in the spring when it stays light till 730 at night, you're just John Q. Public driving down the street, not minding your own business, and you see this kind of warfare going on in front of you, how shocking and completely in awe you must have been that the cops couldn't do anything. And, um, so that's, that's the whole kind of synopsis of it. The whole, you know, you know, outer edge of, of, of what happened. There's a lot, a lot, a lot that went on during this. I mean, deputies getting shot, they pick up each other. They, they, they pick up a guy. I mean, there was what we call it. We used to have a, a saying in the day and it's still used 1199, which means officer down. We need help. I believe there was six or seven of those broadcasts within about a, 10 minute uh, wow. time frame from the initial fourth and Hamner to the outskirts of, uh, of uh, Mariloma to the 60 freeway and then northbound on the 15 freeway was, that was just built then. Yeah. Pretty new. Yeah. Uh-huh. Really new. So it's not like today where it would have been bumper to bumper with the Vegas traffic going up to 15. It was a wide open yeah. stretch. So back then. And I looked at uh, 4th and Hamner, four miles from my house. So when you were telling me about it, I was like, wow, this occurred just down the street. And it wasn't all this stuff that's down there now, no. uh, wide open. And uh, a couple questions, Bill. So 
you mentioned these robbers, these guys, these guys were part of the religious. They had group. a following to that. That's where they, they developed this, this, um, I believe George Smith and the Harvins, um, came up with this, this, uh, um, this uh, belief that uh, it was doomsday okay. and that they needed to get all the money, guns and food they could and move to their, to their, uh, their, uh, their bunker in either Wisconsin, Wyoming or Montana <laughs> or someplace. I was wondering what part of the Bible it was in there that said to, to rob, you know, rob people uh, heavily armed and everything. But anyway, uh, so these guys were part of this just kind of radicalized. It sounded like, and, now you said there's a harvest crusade. It wasn't affiliated with it necessarily. Really was kind of a loose leaf deal back then. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, okay. they would have their, they had their, their. Um, and by by no means am I saying that the Harvest <laughs> Church uh, had anything to do with this. That's just kind of like the crazy beliefs that one would get in taking a bit of what they had to say and taking it to the next level. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Harvest Church has done many, many wonderful things for a lot of many, many wonderful people, and I'm no way saying that um, that they that they spearheaded this or were a part of it. That's like saying that some guy watching Bugs Bunny decides to go out and and and, and kill people. Okay, Bugs Bunny had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Okay, just some crazy fucking <laughs> wire got crossed up in this lunatic's mind that decided that that Bugs Bunny would spearhead this. Well, that's kind of the equivalent of what I'm saying about. The, but that's just background and what their belief was mm -hmm. that there was this doomsday um, scenario coming up and that, that because of our, our, because I think two weeks earlier, you know, you know, we had hostages in Iran at the time and two weeks before this, this oh, uh, right. May 9th, 1980 robbery, the United States, we tried to go in and rescue these guys. And we all, <laughs> something happened in the desert and our, our helicopters and our airplanes blew up and we lost them. And the rescue mission had to be scrapped because all these, these uh, soldiers died. So, you know, there was a, there was a firm belief back then that, Hey, we're, we're right at the, at the uh, edge of, uh, you know, nuclear war, you know, with Russia. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, you know, it's all and kind of... 1980s when we boycotted the Olympics mm -hmm. and, you know, we, um, but in the winter Olympics, you know, we beat the Russians in hockey and that pissed them off. I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there was a lot of shit going on back then. Man. I was a young kid. I remember this. I would go and I know that they, the Russians had invaded Afghanistan then. Yeah. Right. And I'm thinking these sons of bitches are, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, spreading their wealth a little much. When are they going to invade our shores? <laughs> you know, we had Jimmy Carter as president who mm -hmm. at the time was kind of pretty much a weak sister as far as standing up to him. He didn't do shit about our, our hostages until, until you know ronald reagan was being sworn in in 81 january of 81 that's and that's right, when that's they right. let him out because they, yeah. they they because believe me ronald reagan would have gone in there and if our hostages would have been killed in the in the in the uh rescue attempt they'd have, there'd have been not good. hell to pay yeah we'd have, we'd have <laughs> we were going to take action one way or the other and they knew it and that's why they released them but anyway getting back to the narco story um in reading the book it was fascinating to me the names that I saw that guys that I knew and had worked with 15 years later that never said shit about it, that never even mentioned that they were part of this thing. And that just kind of astonished me. I knew a lot of the guys that were directly involved. Um, the three main guys or two of the main guys, Belaski and Manny Delgado are no longer in law enforcement. 
they, um, they're, you know, they had some PTSD issues and they're no longer and understandably, and they're, they're not in law enforcement anymore. But if you read the book and again, I'm getting nothing for, for, nothing. <laughs> for prodding this thing other than if you're at all interested in a good, you know, shoot them up story with the courtroom drama that went with it right down to the fact where a uh, public defender investigator was seen um, delivering a, a, a masturbation uh, oh uh, hand job basically to one of the crooks in an interview room. And she was brought up on charges on that, which were later dismissed. And these two ended up actually getting married. Oh my goodness. So, you know, what I mean, is, it had it all. What is wrong with people? It had it all. Okay. <laughs> wow. She was basically, it showed her hand under the table giving, um, uh, a, uh, wow. a, yeah. And you know, she wasn't down there rubbing a stain out of his crotch. She was making a stain basically. And so, it had it all. I mean, it had all kinds of crazy shit to this thing. Well, one of the biggest things that happened as a result of this in 1980 was some of the changes to, we'll say, the arsenal or the artillery of, of police, we'll say. Uh, was that something that Definitely, occurred? definitely. Um, what happened was during, during this chase, when it got up into the 15 freeway near Sierra Avenue, in what is now known as Fontana, which at that time was county area of Fontana, two Fontana deputies who were getting who were scheduled to get off work in their plain clothes grabbed a, a uh, AR-15 uh, automatic weapon, jumped in a car, police car, and drove up there. And what one of the de Riverside deputies who was there says is that once the suspects realized that some of the return gunfire was that of a, 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 a uh, automatic weapon. They knew that they had better retreat because now they were, they were being shot with things that they had. Yeah. Not just <laughs> shotguns and, and, and pistols. So deputy Rolf parks, who was instrumental in this whole thing, he got shot along the way, but refused medical assistance he and a, and a deputy named uh, uh, Dave Mad Dog Madden, I know very well. And I, and I knew Dave was part of this, but I didn't know the extent. I mean, a lot of these guys are very humble, and they just don't go around talking about this. And, and him and Dave responded up into the mountains that day. They were picked up by another deputy because their cars were both disabled from gunfire. And Rolf um, saw a hunter in the woods there and basically commandeered his rifle from him <laughs> oh, thinking man. it might've been a two, two, three hunting rifle when in fact, all it was was a 22 rifle, which, <laughs> you know, w does, you no good, but it was Rolf who said that because of the deputy McCarty, I believe his name was coming from Fontana with that AR that absolutely saved many, many cops lives yes. on that mountain. Because they had just stayed there and kept just picking them off. So um, basically what happened was, what was that the four remaining uh, bad guys fled in all different directions into the mountains. Night fall came and then they were all subsequently either taken into custody the next day or killed. One was killed by the Los Angeles Sheriff's SWAT team who came out to assist. 
So with that said, um, it's a good read. It's, you know, a big, it's, it's available in paperback now. I bought mine on Amazon. It's called Norco 80. The author is a guy named Peter Houlihan, who did an outstanding job on this. In fact, if you're, if anybody out there does listen, does read police novels, Joseph Wambaugh, who we all know, did a slew of bestsellers from his days in Los Angeles Police Department, wrote the following. Narco 80 somehow makes meticulous research and devotion to the truth fuse with suspense and excitement until the reader is right there. A witness to this guns blazing account of a crime that changed America, Americans' law enforcement readiness for violence in the extreme. Absolutely well put. And that was from Joe, Joseph Wambaugh, who wrote The Onion Field, which became a big movie, The Choir Boys, uh, The New Centurions, all those um, uh, books, which became movies from his experience as a police officer in the Los Angeles Police Department um, back in the 70s. So it's a great, great read. You know, I'm usually not a big reader of this kind of stuff because I, you know, once you've, you kind of lived it, you don't want to read it. But mm -hmm. this was extremely um Interesting to me because I was a kid when this went down and I had just gotten hired as a cop when the, the, the trial ended. I was going to um, say 20, you were 26 I what, was, in 80 when this happened. I was 20. Don't make me older than I am. 20. I was, tw I was 20. I, I was just short of my 21st birthday when oh, this oh, happened. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. In 1980 and in 82, um, I was hired on in November. This, the trial ended, I believe in, uh, October or November of 82 with the, uh, suspend or the, um, the, uh, penalty phase of this. Wow. Um, so again, it's a good read. There's, I want to make mention of one guy in, in, that was part of the chase in the mountains, in Lytle Creek area, a uh, guy by the name of Mike Linehan, Mike Linehan, I worked with at, uh, during my, uh, undercover narcotics days on a task force in San Bernardino in the mid nineties. Mike was the absolute best narcotics detective probably that I ever came across. He knew more about how to work undercover, how to detect if someone's high or not, if somebody's carrying, if somebody isn't. I mean, he was just absolutely phenomenal. And he and I spent a lot of time together. He taught me more about working narcotics than, than anybody or any, any book could. And just a sharp guy. He was a chain smoker, coffee drinker. He was just, he didn't look like a cop. He was thin and skinny, but he, he went, I, I guarantee when he worked undercover, nobody, and I mean, nobody would ever take him as a cop. Well, <laughs> he was a young patrolman, 24 years old. When this thing went down, he was there when Evans was shot in the eye and instantly killed. He drug Evans body from out of further line of fire. And in working with Mike, for a year or even over a year, he never, ever mentioned to me. And he knew I was a Riverside cop. He knew I was from Riverside. He never mentioned to me, Hey, you know, back in 80, you know, I was part of that Norco thing. Never said a word that shows you what a humble, good mm -hmm. guy he was. And in reading the book, I was, and I just finished yesterday and it was, I read and it, it took me, I had to read it 10 fucking times for it to sink in. Because at the end of the at the end of the book, they give an update on what the main players in this thing are doing now. Um, <clears throat> and I had read that Mike died in 2018, and I was shy. I wish I'd have known that back then. 
You know, I don't know where the fuck I was that I didn't hear about this, but I had to find out and reading this book that Mike had passed. And I, and I did, I, I called on some of my friends that I knew from the San Diego Sheriff's department that I'd gone to the Academy with that obviously would have known him. And I inquired, Hey, what, what happened? I guess he died of a heart attack in 18, June of 18. And it doesn't surprise me. Like I say, he was a chain smoker, drank coffee by the gallon. And it just doesn't surprise me that, that he passed at such a, a young age of, I think probably if my math is correct, he'd have been 62, 63 when he died. So, uh, I was very sad to hear that. And because he was a damn good cop and everybody that knew him said the same thing. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I learned a lot reading this book and I learned a lot of shit that I thought I knew, but I really, that, that I, I, um, I, I didn't, and, um, anyway, um, good, good read, good read. And it goes into great depths about these guys, um, how they dealt with this after their families, uh, went into Jim Evans family. You know, his son was only, I believe three or four months old at the time when he died. Oh man. And, um, he's, well, if my math is correct, he'd be about 40 now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, so that's it in a nutshell. Uh, it's a great read. It, it goes into, a, like I say, it's 380 pages and it's well worth your time. Well, I got some reading to do. It sounds like as well as a lot of other people <laughs> do. And, you know, in, in all this, uh, even though there was loss of life in this situation, you know, I still think overall it's pretty, it's pretty good stuff. It's pretty inspiring uh, to see kind of the, the courageous acts of these guys after 30 plus police cars were destroyed and just an incredible story for sure. And and Bill, the one thing I got to say about this is that, you know, with this current attack on law enforcement and everything, there's no warning for this happening. Like this can happen any day. It, you know, the North Hollywood shootout, the Norco shootout. These are things that just happened on a random Friday or random, whatever day that you, you, you don't know when you wake up in the morning, what, what you might face that day. And no. I think people need to realize that about cops. They just, well, that's what we sign up for. Yeah. You know, no one's putting a gun to our head saying, hey, you gotta go be a cop and you gotta, you gotta live to, to for the unknown. But, uh, I'll tell you, you're right. You're right. I mean, if you're, if you're, you know, John Q, uh, you know, uh, checker at, at, at Ralph's, you probably don't have those kind of problems and issues, but yeah, being a cop, you don't know. But I always used to say, Hey, yeah, you're right. I don't know, but you know what? I'm armed and I'll, and I'll protect myself if, if I need to. The poor slob working at Ralph's isn't armed. He's back there, you know, scanning groceries. And if some nitwit comes in and puts a gun to his head, he's fucked. Yeah. That's a real good point. Okay. So I would, I kind of looked at it a different way. And, and the other, and here's another crazy, crazy ironic twist to this thing. When the suspects were robbing the bank in Nor in uh, Norco, there were one of the, I think she was the, the, the cage, they call it the cage, right? Or mm-hmm. is it the, what's it called? The, the back in the vault. She was the vault operator in the bank. Her last name was Disarmo. Her daughter, Dolly and I, dated in 1982 stop it to 1984 and i and and it just when i when i saw the name in the book it made me recall oh that's right that was dolly's mom dolly told me that she was part of that bank robbery that's right and it triggered my my and i and i thought holy shit that's right i forgot about that and in reading what she went through Mm -hmm. 
and how these guys, you know, you know, verbally berated her. I'm thinking, God damn, I'm surprised she's not, you know, you know, she's, you know, and, and I met her. I remember meeting her and she was a nice lady. And I thought, damn, she went through some shit. And that was only two, two and a half years before I met her. And then she was, I remember Dolly would say, oh, my mom's not going to be home till late because she's down at Vista at a, that bank robbery trial. And I would, and I wouldn't think twice about it. I go, oh, great. That means I can stay later at your house. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking, damn, you know what? It's just crazy. It was such a small world then. Oh man. You know? And, um, so it, it's, it's fascinating to read about what happened in 1980 and then up to, you know, the year 2020 now of how things have evolved and gotten better in, in, mm -hmm. in some respects and gotten worse than the others. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you were a young man when this happened, do, do, would you say, so it didn't have any effect on you joining up in law enforcement or would you say an event like that maybe made you want to join law enforcement more? You know, they didn't have the, the breaking news then yeah. like they did now. I remember seeing a blip on Channel 7 that afternoon where they go, crazy train of events out in the Inland Empire of, of, of Newark. And I'm thinking, and back then, yeah. you were never on the news out here. There wasn't <laughs> Inland Empire bureaus. There wasn't jack shit, okay? <laughs> Everything was Los Angeles. They would never send a, 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 a film crew out here for anything. Okay. So for us to, wow, we're on the news. Holy shit. So I remember <laughs> watching it and, but they didn't have, you know, live reports at the scene. They didn't have 15 helicopters in the sky watching this pursuit. It's nothing like it is now. They, in fact, I don't remember any watching any um, remote like broadcast other than, I think it was, um, uh, God, Paul Moyer, the old, the old guy, Paul Moyer, who went, who bounced around a couple stations. I remember him on channel seven then, saying, yeah, well, you know, channel uh, robbery in Riverside on the streets of Norco shootout, you know, like the <laughs> old West or some shit. And I'm thinking, wow. So it really had no bearing, but, um, but when I came on, um, it was right at the revolutionary part of when, law enforcement was starting to gear up and, and become better equipped with automatic weapons. I, I, the only time I ever um, had a revolver was my first six months on the job at Upland police department. I had a 357. We shot 38 ammo. And then when I went to Riverside, of course we had nine millimeters. So um, Riverside was pretty good about being progressive as far as having good equipment and, and training you well. So I felt privileged to be there. Wow. Well, two amazing uh, stories, uh, very close to home for us here and uh, definitely worth either watching or uh, definitely reading the book here. I'm going to uh, definitely check it, check the into other, it. The other thing myself. is if, if you, if you want to get another good taste of Norco 80, go on YouTube, just punch in Norco bank robbery. There's all kinds of documentaries on it. There's recreations with the real life, real live radio traffic of what's going on, which is kind of chilling to listen to. Um, so it'll kind of give you a, um, insight into what happened and hopefully you'll want to, you know, follow it up with the book. Well, Bill, 
our conversations have gone a little different today in the fact that we talked a little bit about some law enforcement history of some uh, pretty amazing stories. But uh, we can't really close the show without talking a little bit about the COVID situation and even some sports. Uh, you told me that you recently heard on the radio an interview of a uh, local LA sports media reporter, journalist, uh, Bill Plasky, pretty legendary guy out here in LA sports. Yeah. LA Times sports writer, Bill Plasky. Um, he, at the end of July, uh, obtained the coronavirus. He said that he went to a dinner with friends unmasked and he believes he let his guard down and, and got it on that, on that, uh, dinner engagement with friends. And, um, he expressed that it's no joke that he feels that, that um, uh, because there's so much unknown about the disease and that once you get it, there's no help for you. You can't take a, any type of drug or, or cough syrup for it. And he said the part that scared him knowing that you die from it. And he's, you know, an older guy that quarantined in his house for two weeks, he felt really scared and very uncomfortable. And he feels that any college football conference, and the NFL are, in his words, stupid for trying to play. Even though he uh, basically is doing fine now. He suffered through it for about a week, and yes. now he's doing just fine. Yes, he said that one of the things that really scared him is that he passed out one day in his recliner with a 103-degree temperature and had a nightmares about women chasing him, wanting to kill him. And they all had giant heads and they had big sticks in their hands. And I said, Jesus Christ, I have that dream all the time. <laughs> it's not, that's not a big deal. I mean, you don't need COVID to dream that. So, you know, I question whether or not it was that bad. No, I, I, I'm in all honesty, I'm kidding. Um, so anyway, yeah, he, he suffered it pretty good and he's doing better now. And, but he did say that he feels that sports should be absolutely shut down. That's interesting. I mean, I'll tell you this, sports are not shutting down. We've seen baseball kind of grind through it. The only sports I see possibly getting continued to shut down is college sports. And we discussed this at length last week. Not much has changed in, in the week. The last week we have talked. Uh, those other three conferences, Big 12, ACC, SEC, they're standing firm in their uh, willingness to play. We shall see. Yes, we shall. Well, Bill, I have a Bill Plasky story for you. Uh, Bill Plasky is a well-known sports writer in, in, in the LA Times and the Los Angeles area. A bunch of athletes know him. Fans know him. Uh, he's been on television shows. Well, it was 2010. It was my second year of minor league baseball. I was out in the Phoenix area for extended spring training. And while we were there, the Lakers and the Phoenix Suns were playing each other. And we went to... I believe it was either game three or game four of the Western Conference Finals in Phoenix. Me and a couple friends. I was, of course, a Laker fan. Uh, the Suns won the game that night to made it, make it more of a series, and that's when they had uh, Steve Nash and uh, uh, Stoudemire and all those guys. But anyway, uh, we went out that night or a couple days later in the Phoenix area, me and about 10 other minor league umpires, you know, just kind of go out, read the rule book a little bit. And I'm sitting there, and a buddy of mine taps. Let me interrupt you really quick. <laughs> okay, you say you went out. Now, this place you went to read the rule book and study, was this like a library? Was this the Christian Science Monitor uh, reading room? <laughs> you want to know something that's absolutely. Okay, where was this place you We went? did not rehearse this, by the way. I believe the place was actually called the library. And it, oh, bullshit. I'm not kidding. Look it up. Phoenix, it's a, it's a bar in Phoenix. Uh, I think it was in Tempe. And uh, so that 
students can say, oh, I'm going to the library, right? So anyway, it was a Saturday night or something. And we were there and my buddy taps me on the shoulder. He goes, hey, that guy looks familiar. And I go, I turn, I go, that's Bill Plaschke. And then it clicked, like the Lakers are in town for the playoffs. Like, yeah, he's in town. And, and Bill Plaschke was sitting there, you know, having, having an adult beverage okay, or now two. Let me, let me interrupt you again. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, this place in Mace, in Tempe. Sam, yeah. Okay, Arizona State area, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's called the library associated with the co-eds and the students from uh, Arizona State. Was this a bar that catered to younger folks? Not exactly. I mean, maybe during the day, uh, you know, for the, the studying crowd. But at night, uh, there, was a, there was a band there, and it wasn't all young people. Okay. Um, but- so, so Plashke was sitting at the bar, and so he was in a place that was age-appropriate for him, correct? Yes, he was. Okay, fair I, enough. And, and, fair enough. And uh, the young lady, I will say, who was with him, not super young, but uh, definitely younger than him, we'll say, uh, he was sitting there and I uh, had enough courage to go up to him and say, Bill, hey, what's up, man? Hey, Lakers and Lakers and five. What do you think? And he, he kind of smiled and goes, yep, absolutely. Lakers, Lakers and five. I go, uh, Bill, I know you're a great sports writer. I'm from the L.A. area. Uh, it, it's great to see you, man. I like I'm a big fan of, uh, of your work. I said, I, we don't like saying this when we go out, but I'm with a few buddies of mine. These are we're all minor league umpires. And he goes, uh, Plashke goes, Oh man, I hope you guys, hope you guys all make the show. Hope you guys, oh, I'm rooting for you. That's awesome. I hope you guys all make the show, man. And so we walk away and he calls a waitress over and he starts kind of pointing at us. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, he's going to, he's going to buy us around. And, and Bill Plashke, like I said, at least 10 of us there, he sent us over each a beer and a shot, each guy. And we just kind of, raise a glass to him and say, hey, thanks, Bill. So a true pro, a true pro, Bill Plaschke. I don't agree with everything he says, but that night I definitely did. <laughs> well, those were, those were shut up drinks. Yeah. Like, hey, <laughs> leave me alone, you kid. Didn't me, you didn't, you, don't tell my wife I was with this, <laughs> with this 19-year-old uh, Arizona State freshman here, okay? I could be wrong about the bar, but, uh, I, man, I, thought, I just remember books everywhere and uh, it was kind of like their theme, if you will. So uh, Bill Plasky, yeah. Hey, he, he's another guy, one of many, who's gotten the virus, and he's doing fine. Yeah, true. Um, lots of folks have gotten it. And of the massive uh, percentage of those folks that have gotten it, they've recovered. Yeah. I just looked it up, Bill. The Library, Bar and Grill, Tempe, Arizona. So, yes, that's where we're at. Well, they need <laughs> to open up another one down there called the Christian Science Monitor Reading Room. <laughs> So you could have, you know, another place to go. Oh, of man. course, when bars are allowed to be open again and we can go out and have a good fucking time and not be cooped up in our homes anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. Well, anyway, Bill Plaschke, glad to, glad to hear he's doing well. Um, yeah, he, he's adamant about not playing sports. But, uh, you know, we're going to keep debating this, not you and I, but just as a, as a country, as a society, until either a season gets canceled again or uh, we reach over – past the halfway point and it's like oh well i guess we're playing sports so we'll, we'll see what happens kind of one final thing bill sports related and kind of as we kind of wrap up the show here uh in a minute baseball major league baseball it's still going strong your twins are looking good uh but you know all these mandates from major league baseball before the season started hey you can't argue no arguments guys no arguments i have seen more ejections in the past couple of weeks than i've seen in a long time and I think guys are just frustrated and angry. Well, that and, you know, you can hear what's coming at you now. Uh, 
you don't have the the piped in fan noise at all the ballparks. Like the other day when Strasburg was sitting oh. on his ass in the stands, he let Carlos Torres have it with a quote, "You're fucking brutal," end quote. And Torres looked over and dumped him from the stands. Yeah, and and I love that the players look at. I'll tell you this right now. It's not the umpires overreacting. Let, let's put that to bed right now. It's uh, and not, not from you, Bill. I'm talking about the media uh, pushing this thing. Look at, yes, you can hear them. But what, what's crazy is you've umpired, Bill. You've umpired in la- large stadiums. You can always hear what comes out of a dugout when it's directed at you. And the only difference now is everyone can hear it now. Everyone yes. in the stands and the television can hear it, including right. the umpire. Right. Every time uh, Tiger, Tiger, uh, Tiger Peterson, what's his name again? The guy for the Dodgers? Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson. His brother, Tiger. Tiger, his brother, Tiger. Coach, yes, coach yes, first yes, base okay. yeah, yeah, for yeah, Cal yeah, Poly yeah. San Luis. Okay. Yeah. Anytime Jock <laughs> pops a ball up, you can hear yeah. everything in his frustration, his, his vulgarity come out. Mm-hmm. Every time on one of the Dodger broadcasts. So, yes, it is absolutely, it's, it's, it's alive and well. There's a lot of arguing. Master no masks. They're arguing. The players are high-fiving. They're touching each other. It's a love fest, just like it normally is. Mm-hmm. I don't see any distancing on the benches. I do see that they put some guys in the stands to, mm-hmm. to, to spread out a little bit. And the bullpens, everybody's sitting next to each other. Um, the coaches and the managers I see are mostly all masked up. Um, but, you know, like the Cincinnati Reds, I guess, had an outbreak. And they, had to, they had to cancel – a game or two uh, over the past couple of days. And, um, you know, I hate to admit this, but the NBA did a, has done a really good job with their, with, <laughs> with, with their bubble situation. Okay. They've okay. got less guys to deal with, obviously, mm-hmm. than baseball. Baseball's still traveling. We just saw a film, a, a little video from one of our friends, that shall remain nameless, that is on the road going from city to city in their party bus. And they are, they told us about how, and these are umpires. I'm not going to give you the umpire's name, but we know for a fact that they are dressing in their hotel room, going to the ballpark, doing the game, grabbing the food out of the locker room, taking it back to their room, eating in the room, showering in the room, except for the play guy. And they are quarantined. Yeah. Now, now, Okay. Like, like you said, we've seen, yeah, it's a little party bus situation and they're spread out pretty well. Yeah. I know there's, look at, we both they're, agree. They're on the road. They're taking a, they're taking a party bus, quote unquote party bus, distanced from side Detroit, A to side B. Detroit yeah. to Chicago. Yeah. And, and let Instead me. Instead of getting on an airplane with a bunch of strangers. Yeah. Which, hey, if, if you give us time to get there, yeah. I, I'm, I'm all, I'm fine with it. You and I had plenty of car rides to ball games. So, Bill, I know you're not umpiring anymore. I know more than likely college baseball is not going to happen next season. However, if you were uh, to umpire college baseball in this new reformed uh, atmosphere they, they, that some of the proposals have had, similar to Major League Baseball, where you don't. You know, you just show up to the game. You don't shower. You just kind of go through a gate. Could you do that if you had like this party bus taking you around places? I know just getting out of your car, it's like, oh, this is stupid. But man, if you were rolling up in a party bus, could that be a little more fun? A little more? Well, I think the party bus is just for transportation <laughs> purposes from yeah. city to city. I think a rental car or perhaps maybe a car service is taking them privately. One guy per car, maybe. I don't know. Um. 
nothing would appeal to me <laughs> about umpiring like that. Yeah. I, I hear you there. No, I, I'm with you. And then that's why I'm kind of like eh, brushing it aside. It's probably not happening. But man, I know that that, that month you and I did, were together in the Midwest in the American Association. We sure could have used a party bus to go from city to city in the middle of the night. That would have been nice. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, I've never, ever been so frightened in my life <laughs> as to be driving in a vehicle on a dark, desolate highway between... Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Sioux City, Iowa, at about 12 30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and have the skies open up, lightning, thunder, lightning around you, look on the radar, and know that you're driving right into it. That is not fun. That is not a good situation for a kid. Kid. A guy who's lived in California his whole life and has never driven in that shit. I did not like that. Okay. My heart, my, I know my blood pressure went up substantially. I know that I probably didn't shit right for three days. Okay. It just was not a good situation to be in. We made it through, obviously, because we're talking. We're here. <laughs> but it was not fun. The best part of that was that that was a couple days in, and that was the first night you volunteered to drive. You're like, I'll take the wheel. And we're like, yeah, go for it. And then sure enough, biggest storm ever <laughs> rolls in. Just perfect for your life. Just absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that so was funny. not fun. No. That was not fun. <laughs> and then when we get into to, uh, Sioux City, we're hungry. We drive through a McDonald's, which is the only thing open at that 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And we're greeted by some toothless nut bucket <laughs> drive through cashier. And her words were, oh, it's you fuckers again. <laughs> I uh, thought, I thought. What have I got myself into? <laughs> yes, she may have recognized us and our vehicle and the fact that we have been there a few times. And yeah, that was a big welcome for Bill into the American Association, no doubt. Oh, Bill. Well, it's been fun again, Bill. Uh, definitely a little different show. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed it. And they yeah, check I enjoyed out some, it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It's a nice change of pace. You know, we weren't, I wasn't you know, screaming and yelling and, 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 and commenting on, on, uh, the idiots that we have in charge of this country now or this state, you know, my blood pressure took a break this week and I feel, you know, that it was a really good show. We, we, we hopefully these folks are going to go out and take our uh, suggestion and watch the movie and buy the book. Absolutely. Yes. Definitely check it out, everybody. <laughs> and uh, Bill, anything, any parting words of wisdom as we wrap up another fun week here? I'm just going to go out and warm up today and I'm going to start throwing the baseball in lieu of my preparing for next spring when I throw out the first pitch at a um, Rio, Rio, Hondo, Rio prep. Hondo prep sporting event. I can't wait. <laughs> because as we all know, this is the Rio Hondo prep radio network. <laughs> oh, that it is. Bill, always a pleasure. Can't wait to chat next week. I'm sure with two weeks off, two weeks to kind of let your blood boil a little bit, you'll come back as fired up as always. Next well, week. there'll be some type of cal calamity that goes on between <laughs> now and then that we'll have a field day on and pick apart, and you know, hopefully, um, you know, make make a, a smile in every everybody's life that listens. <laughs> awesome stuff. Well, Bill, enjoy the rest of your week, and we will talk to you very soon. Adios.
Thanks again, Bill Barnes, for joining us on the weekly Wednesday weigh-in. And I appreciate you allowing me to come over to your lovely home, bring the studio on the road, and record with you every single Wednesday. is a pleasure, Bill. We look forward to having you again next week. Talk to you soon. Have a good journey wherever your work or personal life takes you. And uh, yeah, be sure to write a few things down as uh, things occur around you so that we have a lot to talk about next week. Take care, Bill. See you soon. Well, guys, tomorrow on the program, we will be joined by Dan Davis. Dan Davis was a former teacher of mine, but uh, his most, I guess, important role, we'll say, is in what he does currently. He is a, a registered investment advisor. He works for Primerica. Uh, they do a lot of financial advising and help people invest in their future uh, financial planning and give, give you some different uh you know, retirement options and things like that, that you can really invest in at an early age. And this is not someone I would be just throwing on the show uh, that I don't trust. Uh, I am actually a client of Mr. Dan Davis as well. I started up a Roth IRA when I was a younger kid in my teenage years, we'll say like 1920, somewhere in there. But uh, Mr. Davis, uh, as I will refer to him as my former teacher, which is hard to call him Dan or something else. uh, He's going to really talk about what it's like as far as far as you know financial planning as far as getting involved in some investments for for long term you know as life moves so fast these days uh, it's never too late to get involved to get in, to put money away and watch it grow for you later in life uh, i know that i've i've uh, made mistakes along the way in my life financially but uh, one thing i'm very happy about that i've stuck with is some of my investments uh, through Mr. Dan Davis, not directly through him, but he, he helps advise. He helps give you some options. There's no pressure, no pressure for anybody. Uh, I think you will learn something tomorrow if you just listen to what Mr. Dan Davis has to say. Uh, he'll give you some options, and uh, it's definitely helped me in my life along the way. So be sure to tune in tomorrow with us. It's not just going to be about finances and uh, you know numbers and those things. It's also going to be a little bit about some sharing some memories of when he was a teacher talking about our class. He taught me in eighth grade and then again in high school uh, for my upperclassmen years when uh, we, we were a lot of government, a lot of uh, political science and stuff like that. So uh, going to be a lot of fun chatting with him tomorrow. Hope you can join us or at least listen to the show at some point after we uh, post it out there but it's going to be a lot of fun uh, not just money related and uh, you know boring stuff it's going to be very informative and mr davis will also talk about his life uh, as far as his kids go he's very proud of his three kids um, very good athletes all three of them have done great things and yes he is affiliated with real hondo prep although he's one of the only people who's affiliated with real hondo prep that did not actually attend real hondo prep so We'll get to all that as well, and he will tell you his story about how he got involved but wasn't involved type of a thing. And uh, all three of his kids went to Real Hondo Prep, great athletes. Uh, We're on some championship teams, so we'll talk about all that stuff tomorrow. It's going to be a lot of fun. Be sure to join us. Well, guys, there's plenty of ways to follow the Get Home Safe podcast. I tell you every show, we have a Twitter handle, Get Home Safe Pod. Our Facebook and Instagram page is Get Home Safe Podcast, and our email address is get home safe podcast at yahoo.com we would love to hear from you so if you want to write us send us an email even reach out to us through those social media platforms those work too basically we have the social media platforms to continue to put out information whether it be 
the night before the show comes out uh, and just to promote and let you guys know who the guests will be on the program. That seems to be really good to put a name with a voice the next day and also just to post our episodes so some people don't have to go looking for and, and look for these different platforms and everything. Uh, we, we'd like to have that just to, again, to inform everybody. We post other things occasionally as well, maybe a picture or something here, but that's kind of where we have that. Email address speaks for itself. Uh, it's an option, an opportunity for you guys to reach out to us. Uh, I do want to say that I've received a few emails. It's been great hearing from people. And again, whatever the email is, it could just be saying, hello, uh, hey, we heard your show in some random state or wherever you guys are at. That's always fun to hear from people. Uh, but also it's an opportunity for you guys to suggest content, maybe ask me a question, ask Bill Barnes a question. He loves that stuff. So be sure to uh, make note, if you will, who the email is uh, is for who the questions are for. We would love to hear from you guys. Even if you disagree, especially Bill, he's, he's ready to go. He's always fired up with some of uh, his thoughts. So definitely throw anything out there. You got, we would love to hear from you. Just like you hear from us every day here on the get home safe podcast, Monday through Friday. Additionally, one final thing, you can always reach out to us through those uh, platforms, but you can also send us a voice message, whether it be a text message to me personally that I can then upload or download, whatever the term is, to our podcast here. I can play that on the air and then follow it right back up with my response or Bill Barnes's response, much like a caller would do with a call-in show. We would love to hear voices on there, even for those who've either come on the podcast or maybe people who don't want to come on the podcast but wouldn't mind having their their uh, voice or their one-minute question or or content suggestion on there if you go to the anchor app or anchor.fm you can find us there on get home safe podcast click on the green button you could send us a voice message there is a one minute limit but uh, that should be plenty of time to say what you have to say and we would love to hear from you so those are the options guys to contact us to follow us if you're new to the program uh, we, we appreciate your listenership and to those who have been a part of this program for a while now thank you so much for continuing to join us every day or whenever it is you get a chance to listen to us thanks again bill barnes always a pleasure already can't wait for next wednesday when you're back and to dan davis looking forward to your interview tomorrow guys be sure to tune in lots of great fun not only tomorrow but the rest of the week and into next week already big plans ahead for the show really excited about everything and guys no matter what you're doing whether you're out on the town or around in third base get home safe